A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mucho, mucho, Sefo, Statman Dave, Cacho de Plano, <laughs> over 5,000 Milo, to South America, Statman Dave. It's Wednesday, which means it's time for the Front 3 Q&A podcast with me, Adam Bowen, Lawrence McKenna. Hello. Chris Hennage. Good evening. And Dave O'Brien out in France. Bonjour. Dedication, Dave. Dedication. Solid dedication to the listeners. On today's podcast, we are answering your questions, as always, on a Wednesday. And we'll be discussing this week's talking point with guest journalist Stefan Bienkowski, who joins us to talk about the most hated club in Germany, RB Leipzig before that good Bayern stuff Munich. though <laughs> it's time for comment of the week uh, there's two this week the runner up is from Enzo Di Renzo five star he said simply outstanding the front three has quickly become one of my most highly anticipated podcasts the fellas do a wonderful job bringing it all together into an insightful and hilarious listen highly it's highly anticipated oh the actual things are let down but yeah. my anticipation Ooh, was kicked um but I'm going to give comment of the week actually to a negative review. Probably one of the only negative reviews ever got. It says, yeah, one, that. rule one of podcasting, get your audio right. He said, brilliant football discussion and good hosts, but tired of listening to you guys speaking through a tin can. Listening to a robot voice cut in and out isn't a pleasant experience. Two stars. Um, I feel like we should deserve at least three. But... Listen, William. Two stars is pretty fucking harsh, mate. William, we appreciate your comment. You gotta appreciate all kinds of comments, Lauren. They can't all be five star reviews, you know. They can't all be two stars. Are you yeah, kidding? Two stars might be a little. Listen, William, we appreciate. It. We're gonna try and up the audio quality uh, as we go along. So, do you understand if... how difficult it is to stream a Skype call from New York, the New Jersey <laughs> Turnpike, in order to get you the latest news on the New York shitty Red Bulls? Um, anyway, guys, listen, we appreciate all your reviews. We do appreciate them, especially Lawrence. Make sure you get on iTunes, follow the link in the description, rate and review the podcast, guys. You could be in with a chance of being a comment of the week and basically getting torn apart by Lawrence. Um, before we get in... By the way, I do love Red Bulls and MLS. There we go. Um, before we get into the questions, we should probably address, Dave, your big news that you promised on Sunday's pod. What the is big this, this seismic... News. So basically, I've, I've signed for Manchester United. I'm going to be playing uh, left back for them um, for the 2017-18 season. I feel so, like you're lying. Yeah, I'm lying a bit. And what you thought they'd stopped wasting money? <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's pretty good to to address this on the podcast. Um, you know, I've decided to move on from Squawker. I had a brilliant time there for a half years of, of glory of learning. Of, of evolving um you know and the guys there are great the guys there are a lot of fun and they're going to do great things but for me it was 
you know, time to, to cut my teeth in, in the real world in a way and, and really throw myself out of my comfort zone. I'm a type of person that if I'm in my comfort zone for too long, get a little bit bored. So I think that sometimes you need to jump and, and it's a big jump. You know, we're going to be working a lot more on the front three. Dave Talks is going to go up in value. They're probably going to see me more around the internet in terms of freelance capacity. Mm. But yeah, it's, it's a decision that I think is good for myself and will challenge me and it will be the next sort of step. And again, you've got to evolve as someone that, you know, appreciates what people do in business. Sometimes you've got to do this to, to challenge yourself and to throw yourself into the next pen and, and really, really go for it and push yourself hard in a way. And I think that's why the decision came that, you know, Squawker is a fantastic place and I was really enjoying my job there. And the guys, again, like I mentioned again, will, will do really great. And, and thanks a lot for the whole sort of education you got there. But again, it's time to follow your dreams and follow what you want to do. And that is making the front three number one on iTunes. You know wow. what? Fuck wow. the truth. Yeah, you heard it here first. <laughs> Clip that up and send it to him. Ooh, We're coming for it. God. Uh, and... Of course, no longer... Red Bulls and True Geordie in a week. <laughs> Jesus, we're burning all our bridges. <laughs> and no longer Squawker Dave on Twitter. I think that's the most seismic change. Statman Dave. I now have to change you from Squawker Dave in my phone to uh, Statman oh, Dave. You can, kill, it's the good, you, know, you can still keep it in your phone, Adam, but don't address me as that anymore. Unfortunately, okay. it's no longer, no longer the way of the world. You'll kick can I off. still list you as do not answer? Or is that... Lawrence. Come on, man. You didn't say that on, on, on Monday, was it? When we went for a lovely lunch. We sat <laughs> we down, we had a chat. Had a lovely, you know, lovely come, chat. come on, man. Don't be like that. You know, you tried to pay for my lunch. I'd already paid for it. You know, I'm not going to I'm not gonna say anything oh. there, Lawrence. But if, if, if I've got do not answer on your phone, that is upsetting. I do think it's fair, though, Dave, that if you read my coattails, then I'll take your lunch. So, come on, let's get on with the podcast. <laughs> you fuck off. Is there room on True George's coattails? <laughs> <laughs> Can we, uh, can we just jump on there as well? Um, <laughs> that was fantastic. All right, let's get into the questions then. We'll start. There's only one place to start. It's Stephen Housen, a full-time devil, is writing in eloquently to ask, why are England we'll on him. so shit? He says, managers, players, weather, everything is shit. Um, he is, of course, him a hug. referring. Yeah, Chris did offer a hug. Um, he, he didn't seem to like that, Housen. But he wants to know, Chris... What's going wrong? Lost. I mean, uh, he's of course referring to the nil-nil draw last night, England Savinia. It was a poor performance. Uh, where did it all go wrong? A lack of ideas, essentially. I mean, Stephen's question is um, very wide-ranging and very deep. I don't think it has a 140-character answer. I think essentially you're looking at years of mismanagement, mainly. Um, I think on an individual level, you can't really blame Gareth Southgate for, for coming in at short notice. And and even, I would say, that the revisionism relative to, to Sam Allardyce, he left the team having managed to squeak out a 1-0 win in the last minute. So there's a lot of procedural issues, I think, with that national team right now. I think there's actually things that need to be rectified right at the bottom of the pyramid, but then also at the top. And it's really in, in what order you, you tackle them and, and whether you think that if you fix the top, the, the rest will organise itself or not. I mean, Kristen says there, Lawrence, about Southgate. You know, he himself said he inherited a mess. Some people are already saying, you know, he's not making much of a claim for a role. After winning the last game, all of a sudden now, it's like, well, do we really want this guy after four games? Do you, mean, do you think that's a harsh assessment? Not really, no. But again, we always go back to the answer. I don't think he's the long-term vision for the FA anyway. He's no interim manager. People were very, very harsh on Gareth Southgate and have been very harsh on him. Um, unneededly, it's easy. It's almost uh, low, lowest common denominator, lowest, lowest hanging fruit. Um, the, the fact is that there are some positives. We listed them in the last uh, podcast about the youth. Lingard's in the side. Um, 
they tried Theo Walcott. Um, Deli Alley's in there. The midfield structure looks good. I think, you know, the scares came mainly from mistakes. It, it's, you know, these are all cliches that we're throwing out for England all the time. Gareth Southgate is not the problem here. And if we're evaluating him, that's not the issue. The issue is systemic. The issue is coming from the top. The issue is that we focus on stupid short-term things, thinking that that's going to fix the long-term. Um, and it doesn't. David, turns out Wayne Rooney's not the problem either. <laughs> I think there's more problems with Wayne Rooney. I think Wayne Rooney's one of the problems. But again, sort of going against what Lawrence was saying, you know, Gareth Southgate, if you watch any of his football for his under-21s, they were absolutely atrocious. They were so poor. And yet now he is the, the boss of the national team because there's no one else, there's no other alternative. And that is an issue... Again, going back to what we were saying before, systematically in, in English football, the lack of, uh, you know, the, the amount it costs to do your coaching badges and so forth puts people off. Look at the amount of numbers of coaches in Germany, Spain versus England. It's pathetic. And I think that's a big thing that needs to be addressed. And unfortunately, Gareth Southgate will take the flack. And that's the sad thing about it. An ex-player that seems to not know what he's doing in terms of management, both at, um, you know, at Middlesbrough, at England so far, at England 21. So it's kind of like we're, we're stuck we're ruined again. And I thought we already had that. And then that's why we brought in Sam Allardyce. But then he obviously let himself down. Which that goes with what I said. That's what I mean. That the start of it didn't, as in I, I slagged off Gareth Southgate because I think he is a rubbish manager. But then yeah, I, but I, I go mean, back to What I'm point. saying is, I mean, what's the point in slagging Southgate off either way? You know, I think I, I sort of think... Because he's still not the option. I'd rather go Eddie Howe over Southgate. Push yeah, Eddie I mean, Howe. Get, pay Eddie, he's, Howe, he's, Eddie Howe enough money. He comes into the England setup. It's something that probably he's looked to do. No, but I'm saying, I mean, what I really mean is he's an interim. Let's not get too hung up on him. I feel like it's a little bit, I feel it's a little bit unfair. He's still, in, in many ways, I think he's still a manager who's developing or a coach oh. still developing. I'm not sure he's a manager. That would be my point. I think he'd probably be good as part yeah. of the back stuff. Ish. For like West Brom or something like that. It's all truisms, isn't it, at the end of the day? Fact is, we're all waiting on the FA to act and it really doesn't matter what we say right now. Next question is from my G, Danny OB 1997 Q for the podcast. Now that Chris is clearly a proper member, not a guest, there's an obvious issue with the name Front 3. Um, no, it isn't. It's a great brand. Leave it alone. Uh, how can you justify it? Do you have to do any sort of mental somersaults or is it just, you know, it's fine? How can you justify it? Chris, is that a serious question? there's four people, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. But Chris is, Chris is the number 10. Right. Yeah, there you go. Does that mean Chris is in the hole and should be the leader of I am the hole? In so, many ways. In many ways, that's been the case for a long time. If you ask the tax man, I'm in the hole. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why he plays this position. Moving on. On Dave's theory, Varan Joshi writes in. He said, Mexico is another team with Miguel Herrera. I used to, well, I think they used a 3-5-2 and it might have been before Van Hal, he says, Dave. What do you reckon up? Yeah, I think that was someone that we sort of touched on, that he may have been the first person pre-Van Hal to do that. But I think his system was slightly different in a way. It wasn't so reactive. It was more, um, you know, more of a high press, more of... Because yeah. I remember Rafael Marquez really dominating the ball. I think that might have been the World Cup 2006, maybe? I just could just thrown out around that time. And I think, yeah, I just remember uh, Rafael Marquez really being dominant on the ball and really having a good tournament, playing that sort of auxiliary sweeper role through the middle. Similar to what... Benucci does at Juventus, and he was just absolutely awesome at that. So I don't know whether it was exactly the same, but it is a, yeah, it's definitely a good example of a, of a three-five-two at international level mm. that has gone on to do, you know, has gone on to perform better than the sum of its parts in a way. 
Nico Morales on a similar theme said in regards to what Dave said about defensive international football, Ancelotti wrote a piece pre-Euros about how to win it. He states that teaching a team to play defensively is a lot easier in a short space of time, making it ideal for tournaments. Do you agree with that, Dave? Yeah, that's a solid point. I think you know we've seen what Koeman has done so far at Everton and all he's pretty much done is he's made them defend a lot better and that's given them a lot more momentum going forward. You know, Martinez's sides were so, so poor at the back. They didn't really know how to organise themselves. Unfortunately, Martinez should have, you know, pretty much got someone into, dele- you know, delegated that to them defensive responsibilities. But Koeman's a good example of someone that's come in short term and flipped it around. It's kind of the other way around to my theory on Bilic, where, you know, Bilic and uh, Martinez in terms of how they were following defensive managers. So it's easier to, maybe in the short term, it's easier to teach a, defend- a team to defend, but in a longer term, in a season format, um, going from a defensive team to an attacking team is, is is better over the long run. Maybe that's what Ancelotti's maybe coming at. But yeah, I agree. It's it's easier to organise a, a defence and an attack. You know, you see what Guardiola does. He's so anal about what people do with the ball, where they move, if you're playing a diagonal pass or not. You know, that type of movement. You know, if you're out wide as a fullback, the forward inside you is narrow. If you're narrow as a fullback, the wide players uh, wide, and, and so forth and so forth. You know, it, it's a very good point. And Carlo Ancelotti's a manager that I used to not have a lot of respect for. I felt that he was a manager who used the same system every week, but you know, reading his biographies and getting a little bit more into Ancelotti and into the Christmas tree formation, you get a lot more respect for him. So, you know, I credit what Ancelotti says. Yeah, it's a, it's a, good, it's a solid point. Bearing, Christmas every day now. Bearing all that in mind, Gabriel Woots also said, question for Dave, what is a good way to learn more about tactics? Well, I think first you go to Jonathan Wilson's book, Inverting the Pyramid. That is a great start. I thought you were going to say I think it's talks it. then, but fair enough. I genuinely... All... Lads. Come on, don't be like that. Missed We're opportunity. All here. Missed opportunity. First of all, we are all friends here. Um, yeah, so I think that that's a good start. Michael Cox's stuff is dead good. Jonathan Wilson's stuff is, you know, pretty good. I think it's it's getting yourself immersed with it, but also watching football in an analytical way, watching what the players do off the ball, watching how they move, watching how a, a change from a manager, you know, bringing on a striker, taking off a defender, seeing how the other manager reacts. That is, for me, it's a game of chess, and that's what football is. It's a fast version of chess. So it's all about building yourself up and, and and looking at the bigger picture, not looking at where the TV cameras are going. I think a good a good way to pretty much look at tactics is go to a game, you know, go to your local team every single week and look how, how they move. You know, a lot of the stuff that I saw and I, I learned from was Sir Alex Ferguson, um, you know, late 2000s, his Man United team. You know, that was a lot of football that I watched there. And you gain a lot of aspects there because you see like AC Milan come, you see Real Madrid come, you see Barcelona come. You see all these different tactical ideas in, in one on one pitch and, and it, you grow. And I think that's the way you just start at somewhere small and you build these blocks up. And football manager, again, is another great tool. And that, yes. That's what I'd say. Good advice. Uh, Bean Roberts said, who would you say are the most useless managers in football? Hashtag McLaren. I mean, I'm not quite sure he's hinting at there, Chris, but um, who would you say are the most useless managers? McLaren's a good shout, to be fair. Um, he's back, isn't he? Why, why, is he why, is, why have Derby rehired him? What is going on? I've got no idea. I think I'd have been more tempted to give Ryan Giggs a go, to be fair. Um, To be honest, a lot of the really useless ones aren't actually in the game anymore. They do eventually tend to get weeded out. You can't last forever. You're talking about, Uh, say, Glenn Roder? Whoa. Glenn Roder was all right. I I just think he struggled. I think he struggled with the mental strain of it all. Did Rhoda, um, which there's no shame in. To be fair, it is, it is a really manic job to work in. Yeah, M- McLaren is McLaren is 
the punching bag of the month at the minute, isn't he? So I'm going to suggest him. Any other shouts, Dave Lawrence? That's a good question. Um, so I'm trying to think of a. Re- I mean, it's it almost feels a little bit unfair because actually it's clear that McLaren has some techniques that work, and it's unfair to almost call him a terrible manager. I think it's, there's different levels to it. Um, because even to get to that level, he has to have achieved some. You know, th- in order for him to get there and to have achieved even organisation of a side, is difficult in the first place. But I think it's the long term and sort of how good he is. I guess if you're on a sliding scale, um, still trying to think who I go for though. I mean, McLaren, like Chris says, McLaren's flavour of the month for those sort of things right now. But <sighs> no, Kerbishley was good. He just want and gardening leave a lot. Yeah. Um, but Kerbishley kept that, you know, made Charlton what they were. Charlton were exactly. awesome under Kerbishley. Exactly. They, but, they were but so competitive for what they it's were. It's always the memories that people leave with, I guess, isn't it? I think Paul Ince is a bad one. Paul Ince wasn't um, great. Tony um, Adams. John Barnes. Dowie. I think it's all these ex-players that seem to pretend that they're good at manage- management and then they just fall away. Um, that's kind of it. I think... No, I can't think of anyone else immediately. I'm sure someone else will, but, yeah. Um... Graham Suness, did he have any success anywhere? He did win two FA Cups at Liverpool. Yeah, it's hard to disagree. But, I mean, that was partly on the back. Of, I mean, you could say it's similar to Bilic in that sense. Um, that you know, uh, you know, he he built off the back of another very successful manager. Um, <laughs> uh, the lack of longevity, I would say, definitely. leads into the debate of um, timing for some guys. So, could, could you therefore say Pardew? Um. Yeah, in in some respects, I reckon, I reckon as the game becomes more complex, he might struggle. Um, I think. I'm trying to think of any others who kind of have just really struggled. You could argue at times Redknapp falls a bit foul of that. Mark Wilmot's again. It's it's the it tends to be the coaches who, when they're fired and everyone deconstructs it and the stories come out, it's usually the ones who don't oversee training. And uh, you know, just very heavily on motivation to to get done what they need to do. Mm-hmm. Good point. Next question is from Awais Ali. He wants an early shout for who will be PFA Player of the Season. Um, Ooh, hard to judge now. It's a bit early. Uh, you know, Hyungmin Son. Obviously, his form means he's probably going to be up there. Aguero again. Mane? Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to say at the moment. Obviously, some players in form, but as always, are they going to be able to send that over the course of the season? I just think it's too early to, to say. Raheem Sterling. Ooh, you know bang. what? That's, well, that's actually shot. a good shout. Yeah, that's actually a really good shout. End um, of story. Um, Kevin De Bruyne? Kevin De Bruyne, yeah. I think his injuries are going to cost them again. I think the, the, there's a little bit of an issue there that he seems to be picking up a few too many like month injuries like last season he was out for two periods of like a month and a half again he would have been the best player in the Premier League had he hadn't been injured and again that's a Premier League is robust and you've, you've got to you've got to have that physical body to, to get to where you want to get to uh, next question is I believe it's from Oasis again he said what's your favourite all time team to watch and why some of mine LFC 13-14 and Bayern's treble winning team um, wow! Well, Simple. Uh, AC Milan uh, of 2005 were incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, AC, 
all the, all that iteration of that side. I don't think of anyone else. Did AC two, 2006 were insane with Kaká. Yes. Yeah. And then Kaká left. Oh, so insane that Kaká left Milan. Just such a bad idea. The big one, though. It's got to be Man United 2007. <laughs> what a team. Gee, it's, it's simple. It's just simple. It's easy stuff. Yeah. You, um, you know what? Mourinho, Mourinho's side with Duff and Robin out on the wings is quite watchable. Um, I think the boring answer. But Borussia Dortmund at a clock. Wow. Yeah. Oof. Oof. Obvious one is Barcelona, 2009-2012. Nah, yeah. boring, mate. But yeah, look at, uh, yeah, you can look at their highlights on YouTube. You can re- revisit them all the yeah, time. Yeah, unbelievable. Quick passing. Um, that was Messi. Was Ronaldinho's Barcelona as well was very good. Oh, yeah. Oh, mate. Uh, Arsenal Invincibles. Oh, yeah. Chris, you got any shouts? Uh, I was actually, I was going to say the Invincibles is a good shout. The uh, FC20 won the league. They were pretty nice to watch. They were pretty slick. Newcastle 96. Yes. Uh, they were, I was, I've was. i been watching a fair bit of them recently, actually. And just some of the stuff they did um, was yeah. ridiculous. Um, um, yeah, I agree. I also, at Liverpool uh, under Doug Leash were what was called champagne football at the time. Yeah. Uh, Portland, Portland last season. If you go from like, I want to say July onwards, they were easily the best team in the league. Uh, I'm trying to think of less, slightly more obscure ones. Um, Leon, Leon, when Janino was there, and and oh, uh, Benzema, that was that was a pretty slick side as well. Which manager was that under? Was that under um, Julier, or was that too early for Julier? Uh, I'm not sure. Actually, it's a good question. Oh, times uh, Porto when they had Lissandro Lopez and Cresma and all that. They were they were decently at like or six or seven. Good point. That, that was another good one. Um, I don't, I don't, uh, I'm trying to think about the good Premier League sides. Who was good? Who was good? <laughs> Can you remember Villa the year they won three two at Goodison really late on? Was that with Martin O'Neill? Yeah, that was that was that, pretty. I think that's when they finished like sixth or something. They were I'm pretty not sure good that, that year. But that wasn't. I wouldn't say it was the peak of scintillating football though. Was it? <laughs> it, it the the speed with which that team used to counter-attack was very impressive. Like Martin O'Neill says, you get it and hit it. <laughs> Here is a question from... Da, 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 YN... Why, no, YNWA6788. Most underrated player in the Barclays Premier League. It's not the Barclays Premier League anymore, mate. Most underrated player. Uh, underrated this does bring me on to uh, why you're why you're thinking up your your answer. Paul Pogba. <laughs> God, here we go. What about <laughs> um, Gareth Barry? He entered the Guinness World Record books this week for the record for starting Premier League games. He started five hundred eighty matches. Good point. Five hundred eighty started. That's insane. Um, and he's closing on the overall record: six hundred appearances by Ryan Giggs. Everyone, you know, knows him as a yellow card merchant, but. You know, maybe he could be seen as underrated a little bit. Um, Paul Pogba, Dave, you were going for? Yeah, I think that people now have got on his back so much. Every time he he gets on sort of football pitch, it's a poor performance. I think the Stoke game is a great highlight of that. Yeah, Pogba was rubbish. Yeah, watch, watch his highlights back. Jesus, he was not making people play through balls, hitting shots. Like, he had a great game. Or whatever. We'll forget about that. Anti-Man United tried. Yeah. Continue. Wouldn't use underrated, underrated and Pogba in the same sentence ever. But I, so, yeah, there's, there's, he's getting a lot of criticism at the moment. Um, James Milner 
James Milner, yeah, he sort of his start of the season means you know people are starting to maybe appreciate him a little bit more. Oh, Van Dyke, Van Dyke, he's very underrated. Oh yeah, yes, but great on fantasy. Yeah, really good. Could you say Jordan Henderson in the number six role? Maybe not. Potentially, everyone always mentions Giroud, of course. Could you say Daily Blind? I mean, could you say Daily Blind? Potentially. Mm. Um, I'd be interested for people to tweet in out the front for you. Let us know who you think is your club's most underrated player. I think that would be an interesting, an interesting little question to put to the whole. Um, next question is from Carlos Zaldivar, the main man. I think this one is for you, Chris, really. If the MLS wants to grow the league on a football level, do you think mm-hmm. they should maybe look to invest in world-class managers instead of older players? Well, the the timing of this question is, is quite brilliant because Tata Martino has just joined the league with Atlanta United next season. So, <clears throat> excuse me, you could argue you're, you're about to see that theory tested to a degree. Um, the, the only really other prominent European coach is Vieira, who, in fairness, doesn't have a world-class managerial reputation. Um, at this stage, I, th- I think that's the next progression. I, in in many ways, I think for the league to grow, it has to grow evenly. And and what I mean by that is, you're seeing the implementation of reserve teams and developmental paths from the academy to the first team. I think alongside that, you need to start finding, and it's it's a shame to to kind of condense it to one player, that Giovinco esque designated player someone who's willing to come during a prime period of their career and really does raise the level of <clears throat> those around them and on, and on top of that i think the i didn't catch the their name sorry i think they make a, a very valid point though that, that managers is then the, the step after that and mm. the good thing about that is with managers and coaches you will then theoretically improve the overall level of, of coaching in the u.s there are there are a lot of talented young coaches in there i think that sort of that introduction of new ideas and new cultures, that can only be a good thing because we saw very similar with the Premier League around the mid-90s when when Hullet and Viali and a lot of players started to move over on, on free transfers or towards the end of their careers. Yes, there were some that weren't very beneficial, but I still think they brought ideas with them and, and that can only be a good thing for any league. The question was from Carlos, who's always sending good questions, always sending us nice Comments as well, so thank you very much for your question. Uh, next comment from Martinez Zugas. Why is everyone so obsessed with Jordan Henderson? He only fits into a pressing side, Lawrence. I'm not not sure that's... I don't know. What? No, he doesn't. That's what he um, says. That's what I'm not even sure. He, I'm not even sure Jordan Henderson fits into a pressing side. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I think people... Uh, this week I've been talking about him because uh, it was interesting to see who's now Damian Camoli say that he got sacked because of the uh, the signing of Jordan Henderson by FSG um, in what looks like another attempt at remaining relevant in football. Um, I think Henderson is is clearly technically a very gifted player. I think under good coaches, he's shown that he can. Uh, take direction well. I don't think he's the most enterprising player, um, but I think he's shown his dedication to the cause down the years, and I think that a lot of people want to applaud that. I also think at times he sacrifices his own position for that of other people on the team, and I think he's doing that at the moment for Liverpool, uh, partly trying to learn a new role, partly also working in a midfield, which, uh, like a lot of people, has been uh, of, of acknowledged 
is sort of called leeway pressing or if that's how you want to put it um and therefore it requires a certain level of knowing where everyone else is and not necessarily emphasis on one individual role and everyone playing the ball to that one individual person so i think uh you know there are there are reasons to emphasize uh, jordan henderson but uh i say there are reasons also to just sort of say well you know he's he isn't he isn't a peeler or you know anyone else like that he's he's very much um an intelligent young man who's trying to make a role for himself and i think he's doing that reasonably well i don't know i don't know if chris agrees with that because obviously he came from sunderland when he was younger and, and sort of came from that area and i think there was you know it it was clear there was a lot of hype around him and he is a very technically gifted player he he, he didn't play an oppression team at sunderland and he no, did exactly. very well and he, he, he was, doesn't for england he, the funny thing with him is is, is progression through his career has also been positional so when he went to to coventry on loan as a youngster um he was played out wide right i want to say by tony mowbray um and he did very well there and there was actual talk i remember at the time when he came back of okay is he, is he now a winger is that the best position for him because he is he's quick he can get up and down his, his technique is fairly solid Doug and then brought him in on the right and used him on the right <laughs> side to cross to andy carroll and obviously Luis suarez at the time well, exactly. That's that's the thing. Whereas I think as his body's filled out and he's reached sort of the maturation of himself physically, he's become a more central player. I don't think he only works in a pressing team. I think there are ways that he can still improve. Um, Massively, yeah, completely. I, I think the, the, one, the one issue I have with him, and it kind of came to the fore watching him for England, is his unwillingness to try and commit people by going past them. Def- yeah, it, definitely. I, I don't think it has to be the most complicated move in the world. I don't think he needs step overs or tricks. I think his sheer physicality should be able to get him past people. But for some reason, there's a little bit of a brain fart in his head when he tries to do that. And that's, for me, it stops him becoming a much better player than he is right now. I think it's also partly coaching. I think, you know, it, it, you know, hmm. not putting a coach down, but I think it is uh, someone's going to have to coach a technique or coach out of him either the fear or whatever it is of, of not going past players I, I'm, I don't want to put it down to figures I don't know what it is but I think <clears throat> it would be good to see Klopp take him a step further and I definitely think at the moment in this Klopp system Klopp is having to sacrifice some of the positives of Henderson because other players are still getting used to that and you know I think as a captain that's one thing he's willing to do and I have a lot of respect for him for doing that as well hmm. uh, Richard B LFC says do you think we'll ever see women in coaching slash managing positions for men's football we already do yes exactly <laughs> well. i mean i mean at, at a high level the french second tier um is it clermont foot i think i've yes um i i think i think in some ways you can can analyze the question quite subjectively and say they already exist as well in the the senior national teams i mean it's it's such a funny um, dichotomy in the US between the way that the women's national team are perceived and the men's national team. Now, a large part of that is because the women's national team are massively successful. Um, the consequence of that as well is that, <clears throat> if, I believe it's Jill Ellis is the, the coach, she's actually English um, as well. The pressure on her is, is huge. Now, the pressure on Jürgen Klinsmann is there too. But I think undeniably you will see it's it's... It's all about being true to the process, though. That's the key takeaway here is you should not be doing it just to do it. It should be based on merit and it should be based. And I think from what I was able to glean, that's what Clermont have done, assuming it's I'm 95 percent sure it's Clermont foot. That's what they have, have seek to do um, or sought to do. Excuse me. And 
I think it's it's a matter of time, really, the, the integration. Agreed. There you have it. Um, next question is from da, 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 Ahmed Youssef. Good football, guy. Football is an inherently political game. But why are active footballers so reluctant to be vocal politically? Because why would you isolate yourself from such large parts of the, the market like that? It's a, market. it's a timely question, seeing as, you know, just on the weekend we were talking about Gerard Piquet and the whole sleeves incident. Um, whether or not he did cut off the sleeves, it was kind of... And, you know, the Spanish national team was saying he didn't. He's now come out afterwards and basically sort of said enough is enough. You know, he he's made his own statements, not necessarily political all the time. You know, he sort of riles up um, the, the Real Madrid teammates and the Real Madrid supporters of the Spanish national team. He's done that in the past. But like you say, Chris, do you, do you think it risks it risks isolating them in many different ways, not just in terms of sponsorship or, or you know, the, the, the teammates they play with, but other ways as well? Yes, the, the, there are issues that I think we can have a majority consensus on for the most part. There are slightly different issues that don't apply to that. And... Again, I think I think for footballers, in that sense, they are like everyday people. They don't always have the greatest investment in politics and that kind of uh, landscape. So why would you open yourself up to ridicule and potential other consequences by opening your mouth in public about something that maybe isn't the most well-baked thought in your own head? Yeah, that's part of it, isn't it? I guess it's also... <clears throat> Obviously, there's partly a financial side. I guess it's also that some football, this is the problem is you can't really answer it with a blanket statement because obviously everyone's going to have their own motivations. And some footballers do put their voices behind political causes. Um, trying to think of one now. I mean, you know, some people obviously talk about their voting or some people talk about, um, you know, there are other sports stars who do. It took a very long time for Michael Jordan to put his voice behind uh, sort of uh, racially charged issues in the States. Uh, but then there's also there's a lot of fact, from a personal level, some of them might also believe that it's not their role or not or believe they don't mm. want to take on that role because, you know, maybe like Chris say, says, you know, the thought isn't fully baked and actually they might not consider themselves to be spokespeople for that. Some of them do just want to play football at the very highest level. And if this is considered that some of them don't chase the fame in that sense, some of them do just want to play football and compete. Um, and so I guess you also have to respect that. Um, I guess the problem is, it's also sort of a system where people are sort of told like, don't, you know, maybe it's best you don't speak out because, you know, there's other reasons. I mean, Bill Shankly notoriously, not notoriously, but uh, very clearly back in the day said he didn't want to hear anything, um, from either side when it came to Protestants and Catholics in the Liverpool team. And he said, anyone talking about that will not play for his side. Um, and that's a political issue, arguably one where both sides sort of have to get some perspective. But I think, guess it's also that uh, some people realise that they also represent a big supporter base and they cannot represent an entire supporter base that maybe they don't feel they represent half of. Or Do you know what I mean? Like mm. if you say I'm Labour and half of you, the supporters are Conservative, you might disenfranchise some of your own because you've sort of gone out here. But then some people say that's almost a worthy sacrifice politically. Some people might also have just a bigger view of it and sort of be like, look, I, I, I'm not going to make a massive difference, so why speak? Um, 
because some people feel disenfranchised from the overall process anyway. Um, and it's also a case of medium is the message. Sorry, I know I've gone on for a while. Medium <laughs> is the message. And, uh, you know, the medium of football may be the message that actually football might not necessarily be the best delivery method of politics, mm. but it might be um, a good area to start. So maybe the issue doesn't lie in football and people not speaking, but partly in the issues surrounding football or that are played out through football. And therefore, football is not the issue inherently. It's a very interesting topic on a similar theme. HJD Cornish on Twitter writing came saying, can racism in football be disguised by success? For example, instances from Jamie Vardy and John Terry seem to be shortly dismissed, especially when they are in good form. Um, I think Jamie Vardy was dismissed. It was, wasn't it dismissed anyway with Jamie Vardy? Well, I, I guess some people it dismissed it. We, the, the, um, yeah, the, the overall feeling I got with the Jamie Vardy case and similarly... Danny Simpson, who uh, the summer before uh, Leicester's title-winning run had been accused of assaulting his girlfriend, it all it sort of seemed to not get swept under the carpet, but it didn't seem to get as much attention because at the time they weren't as prominent players, essentially. I mean, when John Terry and that whole incident happened you know, with Anton Ferdinand, it was a huge issue. Um, the, the fans of the club themselves, I think the tribalism plays into that, they seem to support their their players blindly no matter what they've done in, in some cases um but as for Vardy and and Simpson it seemed to be that the issues and the incidents they're involved in people tried to bring them up through the season and sort of say you know maybe you missed this at the start of the season when Jamie Vardy wasn't banging goals and wasn't getting called up for England but um he sort of uh, made those those transgressions the, the timing for me is, is is heavily important in this um, because I think sometimes the people who cite these instances are using it to diminish the success um, and make it seem as if they are not deserving of success. I think you can evaluate the two instances in separation. Um, I also think that timing is important in the sense of when that first happened, I don't think there was the levels of incredulity there should have been, partly because, and you... I think perhaps unintentionally alluded to to it there. He wasn't John Terry. He wasn't a prominent figure in the media. He was essentially a middle-of-the-road Premier League striker who'd gone on this decent journey. Um, I can also say that, again, I wrote something about his journey and how fantastic it was that did not reference that uh, racist incident because it didn't Ooh. fit within the, the scope of the, the narrative, so to speak. Um, I think, yes... He, Definitely, success can mask not even not even racism. I don't think it, it's as uh, narrow a track as, as racism. I think success can mirror a lot of issues. You look at George Best, for example. There's one of, if not the best, if you pardon the pun, technical players we've ever seen, and yet the myriad of problems he had off the field are very rarely, if ever, discussed when discussing him. The story is told not in completion; it's told in the isolation of what people want to remember him by. And sorry, that's the difficulty. Interestingly, we saw a case where success, in a way, almost brought, uh, you know, accusations of homophobia to light earlier this season when we had the Burnley striker Andre Gray sort of came to the top flight, scored his, his first top flight goal ever. And then, of course, these tweets from 2012 were sort of highlighted the, the homophobic post that he made 
on Twitter. Um, and he was banned for four games then and there by the, the Football Association. So it's interesting that that case, uh, again, it was a sort of almost a re- retrospective <laughs> action. But the fact that, that his success brought that to light is, I, is an interesting. I also think that, that 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 someone was sitting on that story to some extent. I Just mean, no, waiting someone, until he. I mean, to some extent, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I also I also think that some people. I said this the other day because we we ended up discussing it on another podcast about Tyson Fury, um, and some people mistake success for status and all those sort of things, and also sort of. Um, that, that you know, just because a man is at the peak of one thing, they assume he's almost at the peak of another. And I think, you know, it, it actually is football is quite narrow sometimes. And, you know, sport in itself can be quite narrow, but it can feel like everything. And it isn't always the case. I mean, I, you know, I just sort of almost err on the side of caution when giving these people status. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, we, we, we look at it through a very narrow um, uh spectrum of how you judge success in football Mm. um and i think especially with racism you know there's probably a lot of people who hide their racism to get the success i I think what is important as well is in the instances that you reference that racism and then homophobia those are important junctures i think for us to learn um I, I don't necessarily think Tyson Fury taking cocaine is that same instance. Yeah, but Tyson Fury is not only yeah, but Tyson Fury is not only a cocaine. No, you're right, exactly. I, co- I think, Tyson Fury is also just a derisible human being. I think with with him, the he's also, he's clearly has mental health issues. I mean, this I is a man who. Say, yeah, this is the, the takeaway from him has to as well be the discussion of mental health, and it's it's timely. It's World Mental. It was World Mental Health Day this week. Um, and yet it is still an issue that, that we don't really discuss. And I think it's it's very easy to castigate, and I think it's important to do it as well. I think there has to be a path to rehabilitation for those people. Though. I think yeah, it does, but the, problem, the problem is, I mean, the, the problem is, Chris, when those people reject that path or they outright uh, choose not to take part in it, then I also think there's a point that the media has a responsibility where they have to say, okay, then let's not hero this person anymore. Let's give it the perspective it deserves. Because Tyson Fury was continually heroed in a time when he was making homophobic comments, comments about going back to the biblical age, all these sort of things. No disrespect to those holy texts or whatever, but if, when they're misinterpreted and they're used for those ends, those people don't deserve that. Like that, that's not the time to give them the public light. By all means, sure, he's he's fantastic at taking punches to the head, clearly. But do not therefore hero everything else. Mm. Final question is from Dan Cooper. He says, "Is Steve Bruce the man to turn around Aston Villa's fortunes?" It was confirmed today that he is succeeding Roberto Di Matteo, promoted twice for Birmingham, twice with Hull City. This one just makes sense, doesn't it, Chris? Yes, I, th- I think I'm the wrong person to ask, though, because I have a horse in the race, so part of me hopes that he doesn't. Um, <laughs> not not to say that I dislike Aston Villa at all, um, as much as, again, I just have more more pressing concerns. Um, so, yeah, it, he seems uh, he seems to have overgone a mini-overhaul himself, um, or He's undergone an overhaul. He does. I mean, Dave, they're, they're 19th at the moment, only one win this season. Do you think he he can turn it around? I'm, I'm not sure quite. He can live up to the expectations of the of the new owner, but and get promotion first time by asking now. But do you think he can he can turn the ship around? 
Yeah, I think so. I think that it's not difficult. I think the Championship is one of those leagues where you go on a run, you get promoted. There's been a number of teams recently in recent years that have literally been about 19th and they go on a good run and they get playoffs or they go on a good run. They actually make automatic promotion. Uh, Sunderland was a good example under Roy Keane. Um, but the thing with Steve Bruce is he's uh, the manager with the most promotions to the Premier League in history. So if there's one man that can do it, Steve Bruce can do it. He seems to be able to steady the ship. He seems to be able to defensively sort teams out and, and give you know give the players a bit of confidence. I think that's what Villa need. Roberto uh, Di Matteo was a horrible appointment. You know, a manager that hasn't done much in his his career bar win a Champions League, but it wasn't really his team. It was a Mourinho team. No, it wasn't Mourinho team. Sorry, it was. He did get West Brom promoted as well, though. He did get West Brom promoted, but that was a West Brom team that had been yo-yoing and had enough quality to to go up, which, again, he should have been able to do with this Villa team, but it's gone the other way. So I think with him, it's not a massive factor. I think it's very easy to say that, though. The the one... Excuse me, the one thing I really think Bruce has to work on and then maybe his biggest test, um, it's not the fact that they leak goals late on. I think it's changing the attitude of that football club. Um, I think there's been, in many ways, they did sleepwalk into the championship, uh, Aston Villa, and sleep tripped. Just kind of watching them this season in the in the opportunities that I've had, there doesn't seem to have been a huge amount of change. So if they score first, again, optimism picks up, things right. But the second they concede a goal, for the most part, they really tend to go inside themselves. There's only one game in which I didn't see them do that, and that was against Newcastle. And it was largely because Newcastle invited them on and were trying to win the game 1-0 and missed a few chances. If if the, there's a moment where Mordi Army puts it wide from about five yards, six yards out, if he scores that, it's another defeat there. So I think, and it's the same thing that the, I think Benitez had to do when he arrived at Newcastle, and why him having that time now has been so important in terms of the last few months of the season. It's changing that mentality. It's changing the idea that you're not losers, that you're winners and there's something to fight for. Same same task for this podcast. Really. <laughs> um, I did want to bring up, since we're talking about Steve Bruce, um, you might not know this. I'm sure some of you do, but Steve Bruce was once an author in his spare time. Do you guys know this? No. Yes. Is this is this from something you were doing in your research in top tens most bizarre things ever to happen to managers? No, stuff? no, no, no. I wish. I wish I'd had that idea. It was actually brought up by a guy called Seamus O'Reilly. He wrote an article over this. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Set pieces. Um, it was sort of thrown around a few years ago as well. And it was also featured on uh, the Second Captain's podcast this week and Football Weekly. Um, but essentially... He they're wrote, really expensive to buy. To yeah, they're out of print, essentially. So there's not many of them 
floating around. But in case you didn't know, bizarrely, Steve Bruce wrote three books, football-themed detective mystery sort of novels, between 1999 and 2000. He burned brightly but briefly, essentially. Um, I think it's fair to say his writing style can be described as, as minimalist. So I've managed to find an old excerpt. I wanted to, to read it out for you so you can get a sense of, of the sort of author that Steve Bruce was. Um, because he's since come out, he's since come out and described them as, you know, uh, the biggest pieces of crap ever, I believe are his exact words. Um, wow. but here's a nice excerpt from one of his and books. And he managed Birmingham. Exactly. <laughs> so here's a, here's a piece from one of his books called Sweeper, you know, um, so here it goes. I prepared and ate breakfast. My mother always impressed upon me as a lad, the importance of a good breakfast. I don't go to the full Monty. I can manage without a pork chop and black pudding. But I like cereals followed by bacon and eggs and toast with marmalade, all washed down with tea. That's the kind of breakfast a man such as me needs. It's quite, uh, it's quite beautiful. I think you'd agree, Lawrence. Um, um, yeah. Well. Maybe here's, here's, the, the, here's a little bit later in the book where things have escalated a few levels. The gun was level with my belly. It's <laughs> not lunch. So this was what it was like to die. <laughs> My mother imparted on me the importance of <laughs> I've skipped ahead. I have skipped ahead. So he says so sure it's elevens is. Sure. So this is what it was like to die. There was no doubt I was going to die. And not even in Newcastle. Not even Premier League. In Halifax, of all places, with a club in the third division. I mean, I don't want to give any context to it. I don't want to to explain the plot of the book, I think you, you get a good sense. Not well, only what the book's about there, how it escalates. On the phone. <laughs> how it escalates. Did you, did you buy the book, Adam? No. You, like I said, you can't buy it. There's, um, it's out of print, essentially. So there's only a few copies. A few lucky people around there uh, out in the world have got it. Um, but so one, where are you getting these excerpts, Adam? These are you are from, saying that you are the new voice of Steve Bruce's so, or, or I, wish, I wish I could. These are excerpts that I've had to do a bit of Google searching to, to dig around to find. But there was one Amazon review from back in 2009 when the books were actually available, which I think sums it up perfectly. It says, this is a very vexing book. On the one hand, it is one of the most poorly written books I've ever read, yet, <laughs> yet it is hugely satisfying which I think is uh, the perfect way to sum up. So there you go, little known fact. <laughs> that review there from Roberto. Sully Hall. So if you didn't know, Steve Bruce, he was a, a short-lived mystery detective football author. Uh, between mystery detective? Sorry, what do you think these books are about? Because neither of it's those about... excerpts that you've, you've read to us sound like mystery detective excerpts. It's about, it's sort of like, um, he's the, the character in the book is quite clearly a surrogate for Steve Bruce. He's called like Steve Bryan or something, who happens to be like the manager of uh, <laughs> happens to be the manager of like a fictional of Cole Hitty. Mm. Yeah, but like at the same time, it also has the real team. So like Manchester United is in the book, and Sir Alex Ferguson is described in the book, and all this sort of stuff. But he's the manager of a fictional team. But he goes goes around like solving crimes, even though he you know <laughs> describes himself as not very good at solving crimes. And he's no detective himself. He goes about trying to solve the crimes ahead of the police, like. This book sweeper, uh, I think the janitor is murdered at the football club, and of course Steve, Steve Bruce goes to solve the murder. That's that's how it is. That's why elevates from he's describing his breakfast one morning. A few chapters later, he's got a gun in his belly. He's going to die. You know, so it's. Um, I had a choice: win the header or stop the murder. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you can just imagine uh, biggest three points of the season. <laughs> 
So, guys, there you go. If you, if any of you out there do have a copy of this book, um, please do send it into us so we can. Please have send the it. Pleasure. We will turn it into it. the bit into the biggest like an animation. We could do like an yeah. animation video. Um, I paid money to watch Steve Bruce and Lee Henry have their own cop show. <laughs> yeah. That would be quite but who's good and who's bad? One one is an old timer. The other is just a young man trying to make his way in the industry. The, which one's which? The final question, uh, Luke Dorr wrote in, at BlackShadow179, he just said, can you include Adam's plane story in a podcast? I'm dying of anticipation. Shit. I don't know why. Um, I assume, I, I sent out a little tweet from my travels when you know I landed and the plane I was on happened to be on fire. Um, all very dramatic. But essentially at the time, I wasn't quite sure what's happening. I am alive, as you can as you can hear. But at the time, weren't quite sure, so sure we were going to land. Um, essentially, sitting on the plane, you know, just settling in. Ten minutes into the flight, and all of a sudden, there was a huge bang and a, and a flash. Planes start shaking. People start screaming. They start doing the crosses. All this sort of stuff. Um, not sure what's going on. I immediately assumed the engine on the wing had exploded or something. I didn't know what was going. On. Uh, that suspicion was, you know, taken even further when I looked out the window and saw flames coming off the wing. Um, my girlfriend's sitting next to me. I understand I began a little bit worried. The guy by the window is even more worried. He starts shouting out that the wing's on fire, the wing's on fire. So for about a good, I'd say, 30 seconds, uh, you know, started confronting uh, the impending end of my life, essentially. <laughs> and the last thought on my mind, you know, it was, I am the whole. That's what I was thinking the whole time. You still haven't uploaded that bloody podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but for, for a good the 20 seconds. Three. Yeah. For a good 20 seconds, I thought, you know what, actually, this, this doesn't look too good. This doesn't look too good. Everyone was screaming. It was, going to, it was a bit wild. But uh, eventually the flames went out and the captain came over the tannoy. I have to say, it wasn't massively reassuring. He was like, oh, so it turns out we were just hit by lightning. Um... Looks like everything's all right though, so I'm just going to carry on. I got on. chills. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he just said, "Yeah, we're just going to carry on." So there was another hour of the flight, during which everyone was crossing their fingers, toes, and everything. Um, and yeah, it was it was a pretty scary uh, thirty seconds or so. But <laughs> everything's all right, Captain. Like, Those words you keep using. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah, I think it's going to be all right. So uh, but that was translated, to be fair. So he might have been much more uh, confident, but. The uh, the, mucho, the, mucho, bueno, bueno, ghetto to um, uh, Buenos Aires. Oh, uh, yes, yeah, the kind of safe muy grande. I just apologize to all Spanish uh, speaking listeners. The best thing is, oh yeah, it goes, mucho, mucho, sefo, statman Dave, cacho de plano, <laughs> over 5,000 milo, to South America, <laughs> statman Dave. Oh. <laughs> so they have it. I mean, they've, they've added exactly what happened. That was what the pilot said. So yeah, there you have it, guys. Um, right, let's move on to part two of this week's podcast. It is our interview with journalist Stefan Biankowski. Uh, from the Washington Post. Me and Chris sat down with him earlier to talk RB Leipzig. So I'm here now with Stefan Biankowski, sports correspondent for the Washington Post. Stefan, welcome to the front three. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to join you. So, Rassenball Sport Leipzig, or RB Leipzig, as they are better known, they're now the first promoted club in German football history 
to go six matches of a new season undefeated. They're already being talked up as contenders for European qualification, but this isn't exactly the feel-good story some people might expect it to be. In fact, RB Leipzig are commonly referred to as the most hated club in Germany. For those who aren't familiar with the history of the club, can you give us a little bit of background as to why that is? It's quite a long story, actually. Um, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, Red Bull, uh, the sports energy drink, have a huge portfolio of not only football clubs, uh, but obviously clubs around the world in terms of you know Formula One and they do all sorts of extreme sports as well. And from I think from the very beginning of that decision uh, to expand into sports, they've always wanted uh, a football club in Germany. Um, the company themselves are Austrian and obviously Germany has always been a major market for them. And the real interest in forming a German football club really started um, around 2006, which was three years before Leipzig were founded. Um, a number of members within the company set about trying to find a way of investing um, in certain football clubs around Germany uh, with the hope of obviously moving on to building into them as they have done in uh, United States and Austria. But that started off with the likes of, ironically, they started at St. Pauli, I believe, which are probably the very worst club to start off with if you're looking to, you know, start this sort of hostile corporate takeover. Um, St. Pauli told them very quickly where they could uh, go. Um, and before very quickly realising that to basically get into the German Football League, they'd have to start at the very bottom. Um, and what they did was they started at the very bottom with a, an amateur side called SSV Markranstad. And they basically bought the licence fee off them um, the player fee off them, um, and then they bought the the youth fee, um, the youth license off a local club in Leipzig. Both these clubs were uh, in Leipzig or just around Leipzig because um, they had they basically had to buy the rights to be a club from Mark Rinstad, and then they had to buy the rights of a, of four youth teams from another club to because obviously the DFL have rules in place that any club that takes part in the football pyramid has to have four youth teams. Um, so they did all that um, and they very quickly changed the name of the club uh, to, as you said quite rightfully, Rasenball Sport, which in German very quickly translates to, you know, lawn ball sports. Um, and it's, and, and as we all know, they're now popularly known as RB Leipzig um, with obviously the owners of the club hoping people's ignorance will just assume it's red. It's oh. clever. It's clever. Yeah, it is quite clever. Um, and from there, they've made their way very quickly up the league. Now we find them in the Bundesliga. Uh, and although many people thought they might have taken a season or two to embed, as you mentioned in the intro there, uh, they're wasting very little time at all. Yeah, it's interesting you're sort of talking about how they sort of set themselves up. I mean, some would call them a modern club. I mean, if you're being less charitable, some opposition fans might call them plastic. I mean, although they're very different extremes in terms of situation, you can sort of see the parallels with some English clubs like Chelsea, Man City, at least in how terms of people outside the club view them with accusations of buying success, of financial doping. And of course, in Germany, that idea is even more controversial where tradition and the fans' right to have a say in how clubs are run is so important. For instance, the, the 50 plus one rule in the Bundesliga designed so club members retain overall control of a club. I mean, RB Leipzig have sort of got around that themselves in a way, haven't they? Yeah, they did. Um, when they finally started to making the way into the semi-professional to professional stages of the German football pyramid, DFL were very quickly on their case 
I mean, obviously, the German author- German football authorities have been aware of Leipzig for a, not- for a long time. Um, they've been a thorn in their side. Not Leipzig, sorry, Red Bull. Um, and it was very much came to a point where they said that you have to have, you have to abide by the 50 plus one rule. Um, so Leipzig, Leipzig restructured their back stat, back room, back room activities and way the club is structured so that they did have members. Um, and then, you know, they, they, they structured it to a certain extent that um, they basically priced out the idea of football fans actually being able to buy into the club. So you can technically um, become a member of Leipzig like you could perhaps at Dortmund and Bayern Munich. The only mm-hmm. thing is it would probably cost you about 10 times the amount of money. Um, and Leipzig have a manner in which the way that they set it up is that they can actually reject your request if they want. So they're very much in control of how many people become members. And in, term, in, in front of the press, they'll say things like, I think at the time they, they mentioned that um, they were concerned about the fact that um, fan ultra groups um, have managed to infiltrate certain clubs in Germany um, and were now, with their sheer numbers, been able to dictate how the clubs acted. And, you know, I think RB Leipzig at the time suggested that they were terrified of the thought of that happening to their humble club. Um, so they have managed to work their way around it. They do technically follow the rules to an extent, um, but they do so by making sure no one can actually join and most of the members of the club, the vast majority, are of course people are in on the uh, the project. So things go very much according to plan. Um, but in terms of the fifty plus one rule, uh, it's something that a number, a, a good handful of clubs um, in Germany uh, do have exceptions to. Of course, Leverkusen and Wolfsburg are probably the most obvious ones who um, don't abide by it simply because they were when they were founded. Um, over 100 years ago, I'd say for for at least Leverkusen, um, they were part of the company when they were founded, and they were they were founded as uh, a club for the factory workers. And Hoffenheim uh, are a case of uh, a private investor being able to put money in. Um, of course, it's also worth mentioning that there is a clause in the 50 plus one rule that um, if someone was to put money in for over the course of 20 years, um, they can control a stake larger than 50 percent. Mm. So. Uh, and I do believe that that's actually something that Leipzig are actually held to. Um, so it's not it's not too similar. In fact, it's not very it's not like uh, what you have in England at all. In the sense that um, you know, if I had enough money, I could probably go down to any club I wanted to in yeah. England and basically buy the shares I want. You still you still can't do that in Germany. And even though Leipzig have been very smart about it, um, they are still held uh, to certain rules, which mean that they have to stick around and actually continue to fund this club. It raises a, an interesting question. I'm kind of curious to get your opinion on it, Stephen. You, you alluded to it there, the, the idea of Hoffenheim. I know Hanover 96 are another club that are supposedly moving towards that similar kind of structure. How do you personally, as someone that's quite invested in, in German football, feel about that argument relative to, to Red Bull Leipzig? I think it's quite interesting um it's obviously a very unique setup in European football. It's something that um, completely differentiates German football from not, not just English football, of course, but Spanish and Italian as well, and the other major leagues around uh, Europe. Um, and there are obviously a number of people who are dead against it, as you mentioned, Chris Martin Keane, the Hanover '96, the president of the club, um, is very much against it, uh, and he's not alone, but. I think a lot of people, not a lot of people, but there's growing concern in Germany that, um, especially when it looks at sort of the money that's now swirling around the English Football League uh, and clubs like Paris Saint-Germain, 
Um, and uh, even, for example, Inter Milan, um, the fact that there's Chinese, Chinese, Arab, whatever you want to call it, money going in rounds, um, it does seem when you speak to people at clubs that, um, you know, it's, it's if anything, it's going to get less and less strict uh, as time goes on. And I'm not entirely against the idea that, um, I mean, obviously, unless it's not obvious, I'm not actually German. So uh, <laughs> I do approach this topic of German football from the point of view as a foreigner. I understand that people here on the ground, German football fans, mm. absolutely loathe Leipzig and they loathe the idea of um, the clubs um, losing the 50 plus one. But I think I think what people worried about is the tradition of German football being eroded, i.e. Um, the ability of the fans to dictate things like, you know, the price of a pint or, more importantly, the price of a ticket. I don't think that will ever change, but I do think certain clubs uh, will um, work their way around this ruling to make sure that they can start looking at other areas of revenue. And I don't actually think it's probably going to be the likes of Leipzig or Hanover. I actually think it's probably going to be clubs like Bayern Munich and Dortmund. Um, it's worth noting here, that I do like to make a note of this every time this topic comes up, that, you know, Dortmund are fun to an extent by Puma. Puma pay um, a line, Puma, Puma pay a fee um, every year, as well as the uh, the sponsors of the stadium itself, um, and they have a stake in the club. The same goes for Adidas and Audi at Bayern Munich. Now, Audi don't own Bayern Munich, um, as Red Bull own Leipzig, but in my opinion, those are shades of grey. It's not as black and white as um, some traditional football fans in German football might suggest. The, the whenever I see the the pro RB Leipzig argument, if you will, it, it centres partly around what it's doing for East German football and the idea that in general the, the Bundesliga needs competition at this stage at the very top. It needs potentially someone to challenge Bayern, which again is something that people see Leipzig potentially offering. Is that something that? you kind of agree with and, and maybe support in that sense that it's it's doing good things firstly for, for East German football for a town in or a, a place in Leipzig that maybe doesn't have that huge football club that it now does have and, and then also for the, the title race in general Yeah, I mean I think that's definitely something that has to be mentioned, I mean I think if, if you are going to batter Leipzig um, for the way that Red Bull have took over the club and, and went about avoiding certain regulations in Germany, you definitely have to stick a little asterisk alongside their name and I think that asterisk would be the 40,000 football fans who show up to the club um, every week to watch their home games. I mean, we're not talking about, um, I guess, Hoffenheim are perhaps the best example, which are very much a small club in the middle of nowhere who are funded by a billionaire. Perhaps the most obvious one I can think of is actually Gretna in Scotland, if, if, if your listeners would even possibly know that, which was you know, a, million, a millionaire who bought a football club on the borders of Scotland and England who spent a fortune and you know, even though he promoted them to the very top division, there's only ever about four or 500 people that bothered watching them. Um, you know, Leipzig are, um, even though they might be covered in Red Bull, um, you know, memorabilia, they are. There's a genuine football club there and there's a genuine fan support there um, for, as you say, a part of the country in Germany that um, doesn't really have that, didn't have that. I mean, I think it's hard to actually appreciate until you actually look at a map of Germany just how isolated, for example, Berlin is from the rest of the country. Um, there's always reason for that because of the way the country once was two countries. Um, but 
even just the geography of the Bundesliga is very much um, most a good, a good three quarters of the clubs are based where I am in Bonn, which is along, you know, down the Rhine. You obviously have Munich and Nuremberg and Stuttgart and stuff in the south. But um, aside from Leipzig, you only really have Berlin in the east. Um, and interestingly enough, there are American investors at Hertha Berlin who probably much like the people at Leipzig who are running things, look at the amount of people that live in that part of the country and think, there's a huge appetite for football here, and it can only grow. Um, and I think that's and I think that's fair. In terms of a, a title race, um, I think this would be quite interesting. Over the last five years, I believe it is, Leipzig will actually have spent Bayern Munich, which is quite bizarre wow. if you think about it. Because um, at least in terms of um, overall spent or net spent, rather, um, which is quite hard to fathom, considering that they don't have any massive stars. Um, I'm sure Chris probably has. In the past, explain to you the number of players that they do have. They've got a lot of young players, and that seems to be a policy that they're following uh, through uh, Ragnik, who's you know sporting director who very much believes in youth football. Um, but they do. They have a very young, exciting team. I don't expect them to get anywhere near a title race, if I'm being honest with you. I think if they can push for a Europa League spot, um, maybe push for a top four spot, hmm. if Schalke continue to falter, um, and Gladbach, and maybe even Bayer Leverkusen, maybe look a little wonky this season. But I think... Um, you know, they've done very well so far, and if they can stay around fifth or sixth this season, then that'll be a huge achievement. And we'd only have to see how much they could then spend next season to see if they really could be title challengers. In terms of on the pitch, I mean, you're talking about their early season success and they're, they're looking to extend their unbeaten run to seven. What sort of style of player are they adopting, and what's the, the club's philosophy on the pitch? Well, under Ralph uh, Heisenhutel, they're very much a, um, a very in your face attacking physical side. Um, which I can appreciate. That kind of sounds like every German football team when you watch the league. Um, but they do have very quick attacking players that can cause trouble for any squad. I'm not entirely convinced of the defensive setup. They actually had to sign Bernardo and Kyriakos Papadopoulos on the last day of the transfer window, which I think was two really crucial signings, although I'm not sure how much either of them have actually played. I don't think either of them have played yet. Um, so the defence is still a bit of a worry, but in terms of getting in people's faces, um, they're, they're excellent, and they really do have an astounding array of um, attacking players, young attacking players. I think perhaps the best ones maybe Timo Werner at the moment, who was 20-year-old young star at Stuttgart for the last two or three seasons. And then when Stuttgart got relegated, he simply decided to jump ship and move to uh, to, to Red Bull Leipzig. And this is a player who, um, you know, could very easily... It wouldn't be hard to imagine the likes of Bayer Leverkusen or Dortmund or Schalke deciding to make a move for him. This is the kind of quality, calibre of young players that they're signing. Um, and it's interesting enough. I mean, I think one of the perhaps the best analogy I can think of uh, or anecdote is was uh, Chris Burke's or not Chris Burke's sorry <laughs> Oliver Burke's uh, first game for Red Bull where he came on um, and he managed to set up a goal in the dying minute and instead of really properly praising him Eisenhutel said yeah but he doesn't really track back enough so very physical very attacking football and they're really 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 fun team to watch actually which um, won't do the critics any help but um, yeah so they're, they're an interesting team they have quality going forward um, but I think that defensive line may cause troubles when they play some really top sides. And again, you're talking about the young players there and, and that sort of strategy they're trying to bring in. Do you think it's sustainable trying to bring in that, that 18 to 24-year-old bracket of player? And do you have any sort of views on it as a, as a strategy? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably a really easy way of getting in good players very quickly. Um, 
I, I think possibly the, the one downside to that kind of tactic um, is that one day these players will come over in the likes of, you know, Manchester United, Chelsea, Real Madrid, for example, uh, come along and the players will want to move. And that's, as you guys probably well know, that's the conundrum that Dortmund find themselves in every summer. Um, it'll be interesting to see if Leipzig with um, a barrel of cash um, in the bank account will be able to make sure that that doesn't happen as often as uh, it might happen at Dortmund at the moment. Um I mean, it, it definitely seems to be working right now. I mean, of the players I've mentioned, Emil Forsberg, Yusuf Poulsen, um, Timo Werner, and of course, Burke's probably the one player that most of your listeners are aware of. Yeah. Um, these are young players, and these are guys who very much fit into the kind of football and the kind of footballers we see in the German Bundesliga, which is young, exciting players. I mean, I think if there's any league in the world that this tactic of you know acquiring players um, would work, it would be the German Bundesliga because... It does have um, an unlimited talent or source of young, exciting players. Mm. So, you know, if that's the road they want to go down, then I don't see any, um, you know, potential expiry for that. Finally, in terms of what we're talking about, I mean, we touched on it earlier. A club like RB Leipzig, which in many ways sort of raises these questions and challenges the, some of the traditions of German football, do you think ultimately that's going to result in changes and? in terms of the way some clubs are running, could that actually be good for the Bundesliga in terms of competing with other domestic European leagues like the Premier League? Yeah, I think it will. Um, I mean, from from the very simple point of view of where we're standing now, there's no doubt that Leipzig themselves, as a story, have brought a huge amount of attention to the league. Um, but, you know, I think it's refreshing when something like this does, when something like this happens and it shakes things up. I think... Um, Although Dortmund do their very best um, each season, and I think Leverkusen do as well, if I'm being honest with you. Um, there are a lot of big clubs in Germany. that look like teams who just simply can't seem to get a hold of themselves and you know really start applying themselves to moving up the league. I think at the back of their heads, they're quite comfortable knowing that you know they're always going to be behind Bayern Munich. Even when you speak... To, and you hear the people at Borussia Dortmund, like Vatska, the CEO, speaking. Um, he almost finishes every sentence by saying, of course, we can't challenge Bayern Munich in that regard. Um, so I think if someone's to say there is perhaps a lack of, um, you know, really brazen, perhaps unrealistic hope um, that maybe Leipzig are characterising right now, um, then I think that possibly has been lacking, um, not specifically from Dortmund, but perhaps to blow them. Um, as I said, like likes of Stuttgart, Schalke, you know, Hamburg, Werder Bremen and, and Leipzig are obviously, if they can come into this and say, right, we're going to have a go at this where those clubs haven't, then I think that should be applauded. What they actually do to the almost constitutional setup of the German Football League um, is an entirely different topic, I suppose. And that itself could also lead to some exciting consequences, even if the your traditional football fan in Germany won't be too happy about it. Stefan, absolute pleasure to have you on the front three. Where can listeners find more of your work? Yeah, they can, of course, get in touch with me on Twitter at SBNkowski and they can get in touch with me as well on Facebook. And my Facebook handle is by Stefan Bienkowski. There we go. Massive thank you to Stefan once again. Make sure you go and follow him on Twitter so you can get all his work and all that good stuff. Uh, a relevant question here from Solomon, the main man Solomon sending in on Twitter saying, you don't seem to mind Leipzig's fizzy drink-fueled 
success story. I think he's talking about all of us here. Uh, what would you make of an English club like Leeds being run by Red Bull? What do you reckon, Dave? Well, I don't like the, the thought of Leeds being run by Red Bull because Le- Leeds and Manchester United are great rivals and obviously wouldn't like to see Leeds get back to greatness. Right. But in terms of a club in the Premier League or in one of the football leagues getting taken over by Red Bull, that's a very exciting proposition. If you've ever watched a Red Bull t- team play football, it's very exciting, it's very abrasive, it's very gung-ho and it's kind of what you want to see. It's, it's football played by young players, by young hungry players. It's played in the right way, in my opinion. I feel that yeah, we, we, you know, we constantly go on about ownership of Man United, of Arsenal, of Chelsea and so forth. Foreign owners doing the wrong thing. Liverpool is another prime example. Red Bull seem to be doing it the right way. Yeah, they're a drinks, drinks company. Yeah, they're doing it for, to promote Red Bull, to promote what they're doing, to make their money. But what's that happening with the rest of you know, all these other clubs in, in, you know, in Europe, uh, in the Premier League especially? You know, all these people that have come to the Premier League that invest in money that are basically you know, getting payouts on the TV money and X, Y, and Z. So I think Red Bulls are, is a good, a good proposition for a club in the English, English uh, Football League to, to pick them up and then turn them into one of the teams. But I think the only thing you question if you were a, a Leeds fan, say they were taking over Leeds, was who are they focusing on? Because I think that's one of the big things that the uh, Salzburg fans have, have sort of come up with now is that Red Bull have kind of moved their focus now onto Leipzig and, and Salzburg now are basically a feeder club which isn't what you want to see. You kind of want to see each club being competitive with its own right and being run in a very individual manner. I think that's the issue. Similar with the uh, Pots, is it the Pozios? Pos- yeah. yeah. Who own yeah, Watford, Granada and Udinese. I think there's five of those in an atom. Like it's, not, um, it's not something that you'd want to see because you know, when they play each other, who gets backed? You know, who's getting sent? Is Watford now the first club? Is Udinese now the first club? Granada had never been the first club, and that's not the way you want to see. I think that, that type of ownership should be banned. They should be run individually, and they should be run in a competitive manner where if they played each other, it'd be a fair game. It's fascinating stuff. Um, it really is. Before we go... Unintentionally, I would say Dave makes a good point there because he forgot to mention New York Red Bulls, who have similar concerns. And, and, and yet they rarely enter the conversation. Hmm. Would you also say, though, that it's also run in context of each club? And uh, obviously Red Bull are a, are a big entity. Um, and it's, I know that to some extent every club aspires for success or creative success or whatever, but, um, and, you know, entertainment, but that doesn't mean that every club should embody the same... Um, aim within every league and therefore there are going to be different scales of investment uh, depending on A, the amount of money that you're likely to make back from it so it's sort of a, a cost-benefit analysis on Red Bull's part also well, on Pulse's part I think, part. I think the issue but, we, we were sort of going away maybe the point that I want to try and make is that yeah, Red Bull New York is, is away in America it's in the MLS it's a different continent it's a different completely different competition Leipzig and Salzburg could play each other in the Champions League that could happen they could play in each other in the Europa League. The issue is that players from uh, Salzburg that have been there for a few years, like El Sanka, one of my favourite central midfielders in world football at the moment, so good at pressing, so positionally brilliant, has just gone to Leipzig. He's just been brought over. Sabitza was bought by Red Bull Leipzig, was loaned at Salzburg one season, played really well and then got pushed over. They're Austrian players. If Red Bull wants to sort of stick with this mentality of trying to build a team within a league, they can't be playing with the, you know, they can't be moving those players around like pawns in a game in a way. They need to stick to these two things. But I do like what they're doing and I do think it's positive. But maybe they just need to have a have a little look at that and get that distribution in terms of 
you know, being competitive with Salzburg mm. and being competitive with Leipzig at the same time. Seems a tad myopic though to only relate competitiveness to whether they can play each other. Surely the delegation of funds and finances impacts that as well. I mean, <clears throat> you talk about it. Matt Miazga went on loan to or, or on trial, excuse me, to Salzburg when he was a red when he was a New York player. So they're clearly moving them quite freely. I don't think it's I don't think it starts and ends with well, can they play each other and how do you deal with that? I think it's a lot more deep rooted than that. But then again, it is, it is that the whole cross continent competition type thing. Like Salzburg aren't going to play New York Red Bulls. That's a fact. And I think yeah, they might no. Be but using... if you have if you have a budget of say twenty million pounds and you give fifteen to Salzburg and five to New York, that's not an even share. No, it's not an even share, but at the same time, you also would say... Um, That's competitive in that league. So, for example, it, the 15 yeah, exactly. the five within the league is, is competitive. But can Liverpool fans also say to FSG, oh, well, why are you giving uh, Boston all this money when you're only giving Liverpool this much? I think that only works if both, if, if the team in New York is winning the league every year. So you, but that's again, the thing they have they be, have one of the smallest they notoriously have one of the smallest budgets in the league so they're not even competing at the top end of their league i sort of see i sort of see your point but i also say uh that kind of brings the entitled nature of what success is at any club where it's sort of like well okay the aspiration is to win the league if that's a long-term aspiration it may not be an immediate aspiration because they may not see shrewd buys at that time which arguably, I understand where you come from, but it sort of kills the idea of being a fan because you're a bit like, well, why would I be a fan if you're running this as a business and therefore sort of watering everything down? But the point would be that it's also, you can't really say, well, you know, if Red Bull's going to invest, then, you know, they're either all in on all of their investments or not at all. I guess there's a longer conversation. Be so I see Chris's point, um, and, you know, it's obviously the nature of fandom. You want to see success at your club, but I guess it's also about the relative nature of that success, right? Mhm. I think I, I think. Yeah. I just think that the the Miazga situation, to having spoken to Red Bull New York fans, um, that highlights where the organization's interests lie. In the same way that I'm not seeing a transfer of players go the other way, they had Omar Damari come over to New York Red Bulls recently, but it was very much because he had nowhere else to go. It was not because oh, this is a player we think could incredibly help our team in new york that's that's the problem is that i don't think there is that same consideration given to the new york arm and i think they've got a team in brazil as well as it, there is to salzburg and then below and then above that sorry leipzig on top i think there's a definite hierarchy so i don't think it necessarily ends at well can these teams play each other absolutely no absolutely i, I there's probably a whole podcast in this maybe there is even a tfr documentary oh you don't say lawrence you don't say Uh-oh. Um, i have just started on football managers red bull leipzig as well and i'll be asking as i tweeted out this week i'll be asking our listeners sporadically for help at the minute top of the league get in 14 games unbeaten goal difference get. of 21 36 points which is nine points ahead of second which is Union Berlin. Um, I only signed really two players. <clears throat> Mohamed El Yanoussi of Molde. Of course you did. Um, for the grand sort of, let me have a look. I've got it now. 2.8 million, already worth 7.25. Uh, 
Come on. <clears throat> and then I got Nabi Keita on loan from Red Bull Salzburg, which seems a timely moment to mention that. I will consult with Chief Football. D- Dave O'Brien on this podcast is the Damien Camoli of the <laughs> David, of the football manager world. Get I also got Thiago Alori on loan uh, from Liverpool and Andre Zivkovic after he joined PSG. Right, I'm sending you a tweet now. Sell Ilori. He's been all right, you know. He's been. Yeah, right. he's, a, he's a decent. He's a decent kid. <laughs> he's, he's for, I mean, we've paid a lot to loan him, about one point four million euros, which is a lot. But he's not had a game under seven at the minute. Are yeah. we right in saying, Dave, that you might have some recommendations for Chris? Oh, you know, I'd say so. After my uh, successful plane trip flight and winning the Bundes, the German Cup in my first season as Red Bull Leipzig manager from the second division. There's a few, a few lads that you want to get. You want to go over to Dynamo Zagreb, pick up uh, Danny Olmo and uh, oh. Andre Koric, both of them legends of the game. You, you, you got those in the second tier? Because that's where I am at the minute, just for an FYI. You've got to do these things, Chris. You've got to buy these players. You've got to sign them up. You've got to get Deli Ali on loan if he's available in January. <laughs> Wait, what? On 2016, is this your Dirty alley. Dirty alley. Oh, Lord. Excellent. I'm very confused here. Not work. Are you not on this Dinamo one? Zagreb, you said? Yeah. And who should I be signing from this, this rabble? <laughs> uh, Danny, I think it's Danny Olman. Olmo? No, Olmo. Right. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, Adam, <laughs> quick, wind it up before these two uh, get rid of this. <laughs> these two football manager heads. Um, Fangio. If you haven't already joined our FanDuel League, joined, joined <laughs> our FanDuel League. If you've not already joined, there's still time, darling. Don't worry about relentless. it. You make one slip, that's it. You're done. Uh, <laughs> you haven't joined, joined our FanDuel League. Um, there's going to be one set up for this weekend, I believe, Lawrence. All people have to do is go over there to enter and use the code. What's that I am code? the whole. It just makes sense. It just makes sense. Um, obviously, the big game this weekend, of course, is Manchester United Liverpool. Um, Klopp has beaten Mourinho only once in four attempts while he was at Dortmund uh, against Mourinho's Madrid uh, Liverpool missing Wijnaldum Lallana and Klein they're all downs for the day- game potentially I mean uh, th- yeah I mean the match is on Monday um, so I'd I'd also say worry a little bit about one or two Brazilians returning Coutinho Firmino, Firmino uh, but you know still go for a Liverpool player they're likely to have reasonable stats what do you reckon, Larry? Are you, are you confident of Liverpool's chance in this at home? You think it's you know, going to be a, a resounding win? I think Mourinho is not one of the. Again, he sort of throws that ver- the variable in of the unpredictable. Uh, Dave's probably uh, going to say the same. I mean, you know, the unpredictable against Man City didn't work so well. It, you know, because Pep essentially did, you know, prepared his team in the right way, um, and they City were also quite fortunate uh, that Man United didn't even turn up really for the first half. And Liverpool, I don't think, can rely on that. So let's find out what uh, what, what happens uh, with the structure of Mourinho's side. Obviously, always confident because Liverpool, Liverpool's form recently has been very, very, very good. Four um, wins in at a the row. Same time, they've been explo- really? but they have been exploitable, and they have been, you know, essentially Liverpool need to turn up on the day, and that's at times been an issue. So we'll see. Um, Klopp's a great motivator, and I'm looking forward to seeing what he does here because this is a good test against Jose. Mm. Dave, how are you feeling going into this one? Confident with James Milner at left back, I think that's a real weakness for Liverpool in terms of a defensive sense. 
you put a Rashford up against him, I think there's a real issue for Liverpool defensively, especially considering the centre-backs aren't the most mobile if you come up against someone like Marcus Rashford, who is absolutely lightning. I think Jess Lingard's got to be in there, got to start, got to work hard as well. Definitely no way Rooney. And I think Pogba's going to explode. I think Pogba was absolutely awesome against Stoke. I think he's going to continue this good form after scoring midweek for France. An absolute cracking strike again. It was the analysis was interesting from Ali McCoy. He was like, the keeper's got to save that. I can't believe he's not missed that. And you look at the hit, right? It's like Ronaldo's hit it, you know, but back in the day where he used to absolutely bobble all over the place, move left to right and so forth. It's just a brilliant hit. So, you know, I am ready. And hit I think Lawrence with, is ready. Hit me with a score prediction, Dave. I'm going to go 2 1 at Wanfield. 2 United. Of course, Adam. Chris? I would make a friendly wager between them two. I think that would be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, come in. Lawrence, what are you going to put on it? If only I wasn't also going to say, um, you know, I'll go 2 on Liverpool then. Um, Loser has to tug the winner off. Well, <laughs> uh, that's uh, one way of making a bet. Uh, that means yeah. the same down there, up here, doesn't it? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Could also involve some money in it, I mean, if you wanted. Um, yeah, charitable donation. <laughs> yeah. A charitable sure. donation. That's a lot less creepy than what I suggested. Let's do that. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. What amount are we talking? Ooh. 10 quid. Mm. I'm thinking double it. Double? Okay, fine. 20. Oh, I can easily give, I'll give 20 to charity right now, mate. So um. if you win, Dave has to give 20. <laughs> but if you win, Dave has to give 20 to the charity of your choice. And My choice. Best. And it will, you know what? I'm going to make it a charity in Liverpool. Fantastic. Even better. It's perfect. Just despite him. Dave, do you agree? Do you uh, verbally handshake that thing? Yeah, right. So Lawrence has got two on Liverpool, I've got two on United, and I will donate to a charity in Manchester if uh, Lawrence has to pay. Perfect. It just makes sense, guys. Um, like we said, make sure you get over to FanDuel and set up your teams. We're all going to be setting up teams ourselves this weekend, so you can take us on in the league there. Remember, the code is I am the whole. Now, any other business Ooh. before we wrap up the podcast, gents? Good question. Uh, you have missed the biggest news coming out of Romania, Adam. Hit me. Well, um, Adrian Mutu is now the Dynamo Zagreb manager. Incredible. You, you what? Dynamo uh, Bucharest. Sorry, my bad. Sorry, Still, Bucharest I fans. mean, you what? Adrian Mutu? Yeah, the guy that got done for doing cocaine at Chelsea. S- since when is he? He's literally like the coach. He's not like the, you know. No, in... no, he's the, he's the manager. The, t- the term is general manager, but I think it means the same thing. I don't think he's a, on the, what do you call it, the board structure yeah I mean well general manager is different to a, re- a normal manager but yeah that's the weird thing in, in America general manager means something totally different to what it means in Europe it's all yeah GM yeah 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 and we don't really call it real... coach general manager do we I don't think don't... it's more like a retail term isn't it I always think I always think of it as a as someone who's more in charge of the day to day runnings of a club but that's sort of yeah, yeah. that's a good one um, and almost, I don't know. I feel like a general manager, like Carlo Ancelotti, would be a general manager. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, someone, someone can correct me. It won't. I feel, be like, I feel like it's how Steve McLaren introduces himself at Singles Night. <laughs> general. Uh, some people call me the general. I'm a general manager. <laughs> uh, I mean, funny how we can. Uh, Say that Tyson Fury is all right with all that cocaine, but we get rid of a perfectly decent footballer. So, oh, double standards. 
Just because he's a biblical bigot, we let him get away with it. You do not like Tyson Fury, do you? I can't stand Tyson Fury. Tyson Fury and Robbie Savage have a special place in my heart, and that's right. <sighs> feel sorry for Robbie Savage for once. He hasn't said anything like that, has he? I don't what? think. No, true. Robbie Savage has not said anything like that, but... But yet yeah, he Robbie shares Savage. that place with... He's, yeah, and yet he shares that place, and yet I feel like he deserves deep, to share dark that place. place. Um, um, Robbie Savage also, a cynical use of YouTubers very recently ooh, in just trying to raise his profile online. No one's interested in what you have to say, Robbie. Fuck off back to irrelevance. Well, that's the end of the, the potential interview on our YouTube channel, Lawrence. That could have been dynamite. Delighted to announce our partnership with the Daily Mirror. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Guys, listen, that brings an end. On that, on that note of Robbie Savage hatred, that brings an end to this week's podcast. Thank you Not so hate. much for listening. Um, until Sunday, Dave, where can the good people find you? Twitter, Statman Dave, the new breed. Remember, Statman Dave. Not Squawker Dave anymore. Statman. Chris? Uh, K-H-E-N-E-A-G. Any football manager tips much appreciated. Uh, yeah, seriously, I'm I'm very new to this. Yeah, he's still top of the league though. I think you're doing alright. Uh, I'm currently two 0 down at half time. Oh. The wheels have fallen off. <laughs> it's all gone wrong. Uh, Lawrence, uh, Lost Cast L O Z C A S T. Um, and uh, I'd I'd love to see you guys over on our YouTube channel when we start up again, which is mm. actually going to be this weekend. Imminent. I think it's fair to say. Um, guys, you can follow me on Twitter at Adam Bolt with B-O-U-L-T. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So you would get over to the Football Republic on YouTube as well and check out our stuff there. We're all there. And make sure you...